The Athletic. Hello and welcome to From the Rookery End, a podcast all about supporting the wonderful Watford Football Club. Oh, how positive we are at the moment. It's not been like that for a while. Uh, it's a podcast brought to you by The Athletic uh, and we are on a weekend with no football. But hey, there's plenty to be getting into because Watford have got a new manager. My name is John. With me uh, on this Saturday morning is Colin and Michael. Yes, it's very much a case of From the Roykery End, isn't it? <laughs> I tell you, what it what it actually is is from the Roy Ray end, isn't it? Alex Johnson will definitely like that, Michael, because he did tweet us the other day saying, "I always look forward to your opening line, mate. This week was a good one. I don't know if, if today's is better than last week's." The only problem that with with Alex enjoying my first line is that he turns off after that because he knows it's downhill. He knows it's downhill. Much like bloody Watford usually, but there we go. Come on, let's rock. Let's rock and roll. Right, so we, we are in this weird place this weekend where we were expecting, or weren't expecting, but we were wanting a game of football uh, and, and to learn a little bit more about Roy uh, and what he's planning to do with Watford and how the players will react and just start reforming our expectations. And we can't. But we did, Mike, get to see Roy in an interview on the club's YouTube channel and it was ever so insightful. What did you? What was your big takeaways from that? It actually was a, a, an interesting interview, which which can't always be said about these pieces, can it? And, and not, not just about Watford, just about sports people in general. They can be sort of puff pieces, but I actually found this one quite insightful and interesting. And one of the big takeaways I got from it, he's just no nonsense, isn't he? He's not here to muck around. He's not necessarily here to uh, make friends. He's not here to in, enhance his reputation. He's here to do the job and... I think that really, really shone through in every every answer he gave. He was he was to the point. Um, he was very, very clear about the challenge that he he faces. And and the other thing that came through because of that is the respect that he clearly commands and 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 expects. A little thing is the fact he calls Gino Gino. He doesn't call him the owner or the boss or the or the board or anything. He calls him by his first name. And I think. Just everything that I watched, the way he answered the questions, oozed respect, but that no-nonsense side of things, not here to make friends. One of the really telling questions was the early early ones from from Michael, who I thought did a, did a good job. You know, have you have you had a tour of the ground? Have you met all the people that work here? Kind of a sort of a gentle sort of half volley of, a, of an early question. And you expect to go, yeah, yeah, lovely people, amazing to meet everyone. The ground's looking fabulous. And he kind of did that. He said, but he said, yeah, that was nice. But really, I'm not bothered about that. I've got a job of work to do. I've got to, I've got to somehow deliver four months worth of really, really good football, uh, football results up against it in a tight situation. And that's all I really care about. And I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, he talked about having blinkers on at this point. Yeah, those things are lovely, but I've got a blinker. I need to get on with this job. That's what I need to do. I, I like the fact that he, he talked a lot about why he, why is he doing this? You know, he had a long career. He's of an age of 74 years old. You know, why is he coming back into it? And he talks about the lure of the pitch and the wanting to be working with those players one-on-one and on a daily basis. And I just thought, well, that's perfect because that feels like the thing that they, these players need. They need 
not just to be told what to do and this is the ethos and all the rest of it. And he also talked about how he, did, he didn't go in there on day one and go, guys, here's the thing, here's my ethos, this is what we're going to do, big picture. He's like, right, hello, my name's Roy, I hope you're well. Give a bit of a chat to Ken Semmer in Swedish. Doing all these, you know, but they, they were on the pitch straight away. And we talked about what we saw from that video and what we think he's like in, in that pitch, uh, on that pitch with those players uh, in terms of that. He's just hands-on and that feels the most perfect thing for now. I think you're really right to point that out. That was something that, that stood out as me. He said that working with the players is the big lure. Not winning them. He said the match days are, are, are important and, and are obviously the marquee moment of the week. But the play, working with the players and watching them develop and learning about them. And I think you're absolutely right to highlight that because that is exactly what Watford need. I think you know, if we go back to the Norwich game, they looked like we were herding a, a bunch of stray cats on a football field, basically. They didn't really know, have any, any direction, any sort of sense of... Um, how they were going to win the game. And sometimes I think professional sportsmen need an arm around the shoulder from someone who's strict. We've, we've called him sort of, some people sort of fall into the, the, the trap of calling him Uncle Roy and, and that sort of thing. Basically, I think, because he's a little bit older than most head coaches. And I think what we've seen in this interview is that he gets the personal side of things, but he also doesn't suffer fools. And I think that is potentially what these players need. They need someone who can command respect, but is also willing to talk and listen and learn with them and, and appreciate what, what's required to get them started. And I think it's telling that you picked up on that as well. It, I think if we are going to get out of this mess, Roy and his communication, and Ray, of course, with his communication with his players and how he teases the best out of them is going to be absolutely key. So, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you picked up on that as well. Colin, what are you, you feeling about, about Roy? You know, he does talk, you know, talked a lot there in it about... The fact that, you know, it is only for four months. He's just seeing it as that. It might be more. It might not be more. But the fact that he's so focused on, on that. What else do you pick up from that from that interview, from your point of view? Firstly, I think it's a really good appointment when you consider where we are. Um, obviously, you know, one has to see how difficult the job is. For us to stay up or for Norwich or Burnley to stay up, one of the, one of the much bigger dogs, if you like, in the league will have to go down. Unless Brentford don't win another game. So you're talking about Everton, you're talking about Leeds, you're talking about Newcastle. So to keep a club the size of Watford in the division uh, in the current situation, and that, as I say, applies, I think, to Norwich and Burnley. Norwich have already changed their manager. We've already changed ours and changed again, which is, in a way, I think what you have to do if you're a club with a core fan base of about twelve to 15,000 people and you don't have a billionaire owner that can just go out in January and spend 40 million on two players and you know my big takeaway John to answer your question after my preamble is that I think they have a very different style Ranieri and Hodgson and it kind of reflects their characters the little we know of them obviously from seeing them being interviewed on telly and so on Ranieri is a sort of effusive bloke who in the end said, look, I'm not really worried about a clean sheet as long as we win and get the three points. And we played a bit like that, a little bit headless at times, just trying to get the ball forward, not keeping the back door shut. And and that's why we conceded so many goals under Ranieri and lost eight of the last nine games. And, you know, but my, but Roy is a different kettle of fish. Now, one of, in the middle of all the hysterical hallooing um, on the media about, oh, look at Watford, they've done it again. Aren't they a laughing stock? And uh, fans on various forums saying the Pozzos have ruined our club and it's all over for me now. I can't stand it anymore. In the midst of all that, <laughs> which, of course, I simply just ignore, um, I listened to Danny Murphy on TalkSport 
uh, who's worked with Roy at Fulham. And he was a little bit of a lone voice, although other people picked up on what he said and then repeated it, which is often the way with punditry. He said that he, when he was at Fulham with Roy, that the thing that impressed him about Roy was his attention to detail. Now, I don't think that was Ranieri's strength. I think his was all about emotion, passion, get the ball forward, playing 4-3-3. And he was saying, the thing about Roy is he's on the training pitch and he's just all about the detail. So when you go on to play, when you play a match, you know exactly what's expected of you, which I think is something that these players need. Let's not forget, three new, four new players have now arrived at the club and are expected to help turn this situation around. With the, the massive parenthesis that if we stay up, someone much bigger than us will have to go down instead. Someone's got to come in and kind of try and create a team spirit with a lot of players who've either been at the club for six months or have been at the club for three weeks. And that is a very difficult job to do. But I think that Roy is the sort of person that isn't interested in his own ego. I don't think he's interested in the players' egos. What he's interested in is getting the team onto the pitch, making sure they're unified, making sure that each individual or each pair of players that effectively play together or you know banks of four or whatever way you want to look at it, understand what their jobs are, understand what the bloke next to them is supposed to do and how that relates to them, to learn to trust your teammates rather than just become a team of individuals which is what I thought we looked like against Norwich as each player going well I'll win it I'll get, give me the ball and I'll go and win the game rather than playing as a team and I think that Roy and Ray are two very very experienced football men and I think they will get respect from the players I think feeling that he's invested as well because I think that's something that I, it, it sounds like it's it's come across that, that Ranieri wasn't necessarily uh, certainly outwardly massively invested in Watford, in keeping them up, and therefore in the players. So you have to have a little bit of sympathy, perhaps, for players. If you see a head coach who, who is a bit distant, um, then then how are you expected to, to to perform? And I think there's there's not a bit of that from from Roy Hodgson. And we've mentioned Ranieri there. And one, the other key thing was that he said he wouldn't look back. All he is focused on is is imparting his wisdom and that of him and his and Ray Lewington's coaching techniques and how they want to get them to play. He said he's not looking about what's gone wrong before because I think and I think that's sensible because it has been so chaotic, disappointing, and dispiriting that there's very little to be gained in in sort of running of you know running the rule over what's happened before. It's now it's about this this mini season, if you like, of eighteen games in which he can have an impact. Uh, and I thought that was that was quite telling as well. Adam's actually, there's a piece come out on The Athletic. It's called Once He's in Coaching Mode, You Listen, What It's Like to Play for Roy Hodgson. And that's an interesting piece which you can get on The Athletic now. And one of the, in the opening paragraph, it, it mentions his Premier League record. And over 364 Premier League games, he's averaged 1.26 points a game. And if, he's managed, if he manages to do that at Watford, it will end up on 37 points. And if we end up on 37 points... I reckon we'll be safe. So if he can continue his average, that will be, I think, good enough for us. Yeah, that piece is on The Athletic now. If, you have, if you're a subscriber, go and have a, a read of it now. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, of course, there's always a special offer for from the Rookery End listeners. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Rookery End. Uh, and we'll have a good old deep dive with that with Adam in the week about you know what he found out, what he thinks about Roy. Now he's spoken to all these different people. Uh, who have worked with Roy in all the different clubs he has managed. Then my favourite bit, Michael, my absolute favourite bit of that interview was when Roy laughed and said, 
he didn't believe in must-win games. Oh, it's a must-win. How many times have I heard that in the last 12 years? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mainly from me. Sorry, sorry, John. Sorry, Mr. Hodgson. My favourite bit, I have to say, was when Michael Kern asked him about, talking about the Roy and Ray connection. He said, well, when did you first sort of hook up with, with Ray Lewington? And this kind of shows how far back their, their relationship goes. Because I thought, of, I, I assumed it was going to be in some sort of coaching role that they first got together. Roy Hodgson laughed and said, well, if you really want to go back that far. It was when Roy Hodgson was coaching Ray Lewington as an under 14, wasn't it? So that, I, I wasn't aware of that. So that, that, I think that was, uh, that was my favourite bit, I think. It's another lovely little element, isn't it, to the story that they've, they've been through, obviously been through so much together as, as first as coach and, and player and now as, as, as coaching colleagues. It's... We're in, a, we're in a great position at the moment where we're able to look forward and it goes back, I think, a little bit to what I said on the, on the podcast on, on Thursday. It feels like we've washed away all of the sort of horror, really, that, that this season has been so far and we're kind of getting ready for the 100 metres. If, the, if, the, if this season has been the Olympics, we've perhaps fluffed our lines in some of the earlier, uh, earlier events. We haven't, we haven't hit our medal target. We've, we haven't qualified for the 1500 metre final. But now we've got the 100-metre sprint. We've got a new coach in, um, got a new pair of spikes and some decent aerodynamic uh, trunks or whatever on. <laughs> and, and we're ready to go. We know what we've got to do. We look left and there's Usain Bolt. We look right and there's primetime Carl Lewis. We look over the far left-hand side and there's um, Ben Johnson in the guise of Newcastle. Obviously, they're financial doping. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and we've got to and we've got to beat all of those. But it feels like we know what the challenge is. It feels like we know what the task is, and and we're ready to go. So let's probably just enjoy this this bit where you know it's all hypothetical. It's all none of it's happened yet. We we know what Roy and Ray can hopefully do for us. It's over to them, over to the players, and over to us as supporters to to get behind us as we try and uh, complete this nine, this uh, hundred meters in world record time. So how are we going to set up this team? Now, Jason uh, cooked with us this morning, so I got in touch with him yesterday and I said to him, we always think Roy's going to play 4-4-2. And if he was going to play 4-4-2, Jason, who would you pick from all the Watford squad that we have at the moment? Who would be your choice for 4-4-2 if there were no injuries? Could he fit them all in? Who would be missing out? And who would be getting the pleasure of being Roy's 4-4-2? This is what Jason had to say. We know what we're going to get from from Roy, don't we? We know what his remit's going to be. They, they kind of marry up quite nicely, I think. If he's going to play a sort of defensive thinking four four two, it probably ties in with the, his first job, which is going to be keep it solid at the back and try and try and keep a clean sheet at some point. Get rid of the defensive mistakes that we've seen. We know from the way that he trains teams and players is that he's very repetitive going through the same drills over and over again so that when it comes to game day what an individual needs to do in a certain situation they've done it multiple times over in training so that it just becomes automatic to them probably takes some time to to get used to that but I think that's what it will be so if he is going to go for a 4-4-2 4-4-2 for me is very much about sort of partnerships all over the pitch so I'm going to start in the middle with the centre-back pairing. And that's that's a problem that's sort of no different to what the previous head coaches have, have had this season. It's still the same group of centre-backs. It's still a pairing. I think for me, we've brought Samir in. I'd, I'd like to see more of him. I must admit, I was disappointed with his decision to go down a bit easily leading up to the first goal against Norwich last week. I'm sure Roy will 
knock that out of his game. He tries to do that again. But I'd, I'd like to see him back in, in the side. He, he looked assured against Newcastle. And it's a question of who plays alongside him. And for me, I've always thought that, that Craig Cathcart is a decent enough defender if he doesn't have to take on the senior role. Yeah, we've talked before. And I think it's... it's- the senior is always that thing we talk about age. You are more senior to mm. me, Jason. Uh, but also <laughs> the fact that it's, it's the leadership role. And I don't think he ever sort of leads anybody around. I always think with, with Craig, he has to be with the right person. And Samir does feel the right person so he can be Craig Cathcart, proper defender, uh, not Craig yeah. Cathcart, leader of the line. Absolutely. And and while Samir is, is younger, he has a lot of experience. He's played a lot of games with Udinese in, in Serie A. So... He won't have to lead him. Cathcart won't have to lead Samir through a game like he might have to do with someone younger like Sierra. So, who are the other partnerships? Are that, is that the most important partnership, or is there another important partnership for you? For me, I think probably a more important partnership is in midfield because you've got to get the balance of the of the team right. I'm deliberately moving up there rather than looking at the fullbacks at this stage. You've got to have the right kind of player. You've only got sort of two in the central midfield. You've got to be defensively solid, but you've got to have that out as well. You've got to be able to progress forward with the ball. And for me, I think we'll need a a sitter, someone to protect that back four, and a runner in, in some form of a box-to-box midfielder, a, capable of coming back, getting behind the ball when defending, but then also keeping up with play when we're attacking, and at, at times running with the ball. In terms of that player, that, that box-to-box midfielder for me, that's Sissoko. I think he does that job best. The sitter, you don't just need someone to just be a defensive presence there. I think you need someone when we've got the ball to perhaps dictate the play a bit more, that sort of quarterback role, that playmaker role, sitting deep. And for me, that sits in quite nicely for Imran Loser when he's available, Kayembe when he's not. And when, you, when you're talking about a 4-4-2, when you're talking about a, a defensive setup, you're talking about keeping shape you're not talking about seeing the pressing game that we've seen in other games the, the pressing game that we did so well against Manchester United and and to a degree against some of the other better teams in the division so in the earlier days of Claudio's reign and that all came from Mr Tom Cleverley and that's the thing Jason someone's gonna be missing out someone always misses out do you think though with Tom do you not think as him as a experienced professional who does the job he's told, a team player, do you not think he can adapt to what Roy needs him to do? He has the experience of playing under Roy when Roy was England manager and he played some games under him. I'm sure he could. One, I think Sissoko is probably better at it uh, in terms of performing that sort of box-to-box role. Tom's natural game, I think, is to be a chaser. I think it's the same for Kutzka as well. He's a he's a chaser. I think it's slightly different in that Cleverly's a chaser. He wants to sort of win the ball back. He wants to press. Kutzka, unfortunately, I think he's more of a chaser because the game passes him by sometimes, and he ends up having to sort of chase back. Perhaps that's a bit harsh, but it's the wrong the wrong type of running. Whereas Sissoko, I think he's a good box to box. Will run with the ball. Will get back to defend. Get himself behind the ball quicker than the other two may do, may not get caught. And it, and it sort of creates or keeps the, the shape of the 4-4-2 better, in my opinion. With these partnerships, I suppose we've got three left to do. We've got one on the mm. right side, one on the left side and one up front. Where do you want to go next, Jace? Let's go to the left. In terms of our left-sided players, and the partnerships here, they are the, the sort of the wide partnerships for me. It, it's about having a, a defender and a midfielder that work together naturally let's start in midfield 
I remember Glenn Hoddle on TV once saying uh, that whenever he used to play a four four two, he always used to get one of the wide midfielders to, to tuck in a bit to help out the two central midfielders. And I think that's really key, especially with sort of today's formations. You get a lot of teams packing the midfield. They'll play with three in they'll play with three central midfielders. And when you're defending, you might find it's very difficult to defend those central areas if you haven't got a third player sort of tucking in and helping out in midfield. I'm not sure on the right-hand side that we've got the players there that would do that job. On the left-hand side, that's still quite a difficult thing to to grasp, I think, for our midfielders. What we have got is a is a new player in uh, in Kalu who apparently can play down both flanks. He's more natural right, but for me, if you play him on the left then, if he's capable of playing on the left and he's more natural to the right, does that mean he will be better at tucking in? That's sort of where I'm going with this. Uh, uh, and I don't want to fall into the trap of picking the player who's not on the pitch to to do a job yeah. just because we've not seen him perform badly like we have done the rest of the team so far. But that feels quite... A, a, of all the sort of options to go for, that perhaps feels the more natural one for me. Perhaps you could say Ken Semmer could do the job, but unfortunately for me, he just hasn't got the quality for the, for the Premier League, I'm afraid. He, he, what he does do really well is he, he uses his sort of muscle, his brute strength to get round fullbacks. He did it at times to good effect in uh, in the championship. Got a lot of assists that way. I just don't feel with a step up in quality in the Premier League that that's gonna that's gonna work. Otherwise, I think he, he probably would do a decent enough job, sort of defensively. But we still need that attacking outlet and he's not quite there for me yeah so on the right side there Jace you know you know, you, you've got the well you've got to play Ismail Assar you've got to play Ismail Assar you've got Kiko who plays very well with him and they had a great partnership going well ever since they played with each other but there's the Kiko aspect in terms of being defensive as well as attacking and maybe Jeremy Ngakia is the man to be nice cool and calm and keep that defensive head that you feel will be the preference of Roy, especially early on. What are you going to pick on your right-hand side? Yeah, so this is where you sort of talk about sort of balance right across the team. So I talked about having the sort of the player on the left tucking in to help the midfield because on the right-hand side, I don't think we'd have the players to, to do that, which means on the left, I'm going to want my fullback to perhaps be a bit more attacking and perhaps overlap our, our left-sided midfielder when when we've got the ball, when we're moving forward. I think Kamara's capable of doing that from what little we've seen of him so far. I've seen sort of positive positives in that. So towards the end of the first half with Norwich, when we started to be able to get him into the game, he was sort of doing that quite a bit to, to decent effect. Um, it's a shame because you've mentioned Kiko. He probably is our best of the attacking fullbacks. But like I say, on the right-hand side of midfield, I'm not sure we got the players that would dovetail with him nice enough in that sort of 4-4-2 defensive type system so for me and because it's all about shape it's all about positioning you talk about those two lines probably the weakest aspect of Kiko's game is his defensive positioning and he just gets caught out perhaps too many times for my liking and I think we've seen enough of Ngakia to think that he could do a job there he, he seems solid enough okay there's been times when he has struggled but he's He's come on in games, come into games, started games where he's he's looked decent enough, I think, to to warrant a start. And I think if you're talking about having a dependable 
defensive minded fullback. I, I think he's more than capable compared to Kiko. So I would start with Ngakia there. So and just to confirm it's Kamara on the left hand side, so that's our back four done. So then right midfield. If we've got our man on the left tucking in more, it means our right sided midfielder, perhaps he, we can afford him to attack more, especially with Ngakia sitting at the back. Then we can have Ishmael Asar playing there. I think we've seen from him that he is willing to defend. We saw it last year in the championship. He was more than happy to come back and do his defensive duties. So I think I've got no problem with playing Ishmael Assar in that position. Perhaps it's not his his strength. Obviously, he would probably prefer to be higher up the pitch in a more advanced, in a sort of 4-3-3 type system. Um, but I think he could do a job on in, in a 4-4-2 as well. And it's not exactly like Claudio did in this first game where he played him up front in the middle which didn't work whatsoever. So at least we're keeping on in, on the wings. Maybe not, mm. but you say you'd hope that it's it's actually probably a good thing for him to, to to add more to his experience of playing systems that he hasn't done necessarily. He's always been in the four three three, or at least it always feels mm. like it has been. So Jason, now you you've got probably well your biggest luxury, but biggest headache I think because you've got the goal scorer in Emmanuel Dennis. We've got the experience of the Premier League and the cool head of Joshua King. You've got the burning talent of Jao Pedro, but also, of course, the, isn't he doing some nice things, of Hernandez. It feels like, you know, Cucho, is, you know, he's, he's, you're not going to choose him as your, your, your front two, I'm guessing. But what two, who are you going to pick and who's going to miss out in Jason's two up front? This was probably the, the, the bit I found the hardest. It was quite tricky. Cucho, right, is probably more suited to playing one of the wider roles rather than up front. And and I think he could be a sort of capable deputy to Saar when, when Saar's not available. I think, again, we've seen effort from him and, and desire. And I think he would be willing to defend in a, in a sort of defensive system. So then it becomes sort of two from three. Now, I thought Pedro in a sort of number 10 type role would be quite good because we talk about trying to support that midfield with only two men in that sort of basic four four two formation, he could do a job bolstering the midfield by sort of dropping back and sort of sitting in when we're defending. Um, and he's shown some elements of doing that already this season. He's sort of shown where he's been brought into games to, in fact, at times to even play that midfield role, sort of as as a the most attacking midfielder of a midfield three. So he can do that. He sort of got that that sort of fight and willingness to get stuck in about him. So he could do that drop in and sort of then play part of the front too. But then who do you play with him? You've got Josh King or you've got Emmanuel Dennis. Now, to be fair, if you, you sort of perm the different two-men partnerships from those three players, King and Dennis have, have looked the best really as a partnership from the off. They've sort of played really well together. Dennis has been the form man, obviously, the last few games... He's tailed off a bit since he, mm. since he, yeah, we since he didn't go to Afghan for whatever reason. But even so, you want him in. I would go. Sorry, Pedro. Sorry, Jao. I'm gonna have to go with King and Dennis because they feel like they feel like a good sort of creator striker partnership. Sort of flair and talent with Dennis. You've got King. Okay, he hasn't scored for a few. Maybe lacking a bit of confidence, but he is a striker. He did, Mike said it enough times before. He looks like a, a proper striker. So having that sort of partnership up front, up front, I think, will do us good. 
talked about already having the midfield support from the left-hand side. So I think we can afford the luxury of not having Pedro in the team. Unfortunate for him because he's, he's done a lot recently to suggest he should start. So what is your 4-4-2? Who is in that team? Well, of course, who's the goalie first? Yeah, I need a goalie, don't I? Because this, this isn't AFCON. We need to have a proper goalie in goal, <laughs> yeah. uh, not an outfield player. So, yeah, of, of the two, for me, it's Ben Foster. I just go with his experience for now over, over Daniel Backman. So he would be in goal. Back four, Ngakia, Cathcart, Samir, Kamara. Midfield is Saar, Sissoko, Luzar, Kalu. And then up front, King and Dennis. It's all about the partnerships for me. There you go, 442. From the Rookery End, a podcast about life following Watford FC. 442 with those choices, Colin. Agree, disagree. Or actually, you know, a lot of Jason's choices are when we have a fully fit everyone back from AFCON. Who do you think will be the, and how do you think he'll set up? And how would you set up? against Burnley next week okay well that's two two questions and I'll answer them both as briefly as I can um I, I don't I, I can't put Kalu in the team because I've, I've never seen him that's a bit of a strange one I understand that he's you know he's quick and um uh and he's and, you know obviously they, they they believe in him they bought him but I, I can't do that um I have to go back um so if he was to pick a straightforward 4-4-2 I'm not sure that he would pick loser because I've I've been quite impressed with Kiembe his sort of positional sense in front of a back four so I would probably put Kiembe alongside Musa and instead of Kalu I would play uh, Sema because I think if you're looking to be more solid and if you're looking to not allow the opposition any space between the lines uh, i.e the back four and the and the middle four then you're going to want someone with that kind of strength and defensive attitude that we've seen from Semmer. He could also get forward, of course. We know he can beat a fullback on his day, but I think that he's a solid... I, th- I bet Roy likes him. That's, that, that was, that's kind of my feeling. Well, we know they've been chatting to each other in Swedish, uh, which was a, you know, a big bonus for, for, for Ken. But Colin's big on, big on his JP, though. Well, yes, because I don't... For me, I'm not sure I would play two strikers in our current situation in other words i think if i was to if i was roy i think i'd be looking to play a, th- a third central midfielder that could get up and support joshua king or emmanuel dennis and i think you pick either either one of those on what you what you think you're going to do in the game if you're going to play on the break maybe you want to have dennis in there because of his pace or if you want to use king as an out ball and hold the ball up so the midfield can join when you're when you're counter-attacking then then maybe you pick him i don't see the wisdom in picking them both because i think most teams play three central midfielders and again will be outnumbered so i could see someone like jp who is a sort of number 10 playing in a kind of teddy sheringham uh, role a withdrawn striker that can drop into that midfield and help block things up so it, it'll be interesting but I, I can't see him playing a traditional 4-4-2 I just can't see I, I certainly wouldn't consider doing that he may do but if he does I think I think we could see at the moment Saar's not fit I think Saar would play I, I'm not sure maybe Kalu is just brilliant and gets straight into the team don't know but at the moment I would think that he would try to drop that back four a bit closer to the defensive four, create very little space for the opposition. So when we go to Burnley, I, you know, I, I can see it being pretty doer and getting away, hopefully with a clean sheet, hopefully with three points, but possibly with a point. But I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that he's going to go full on with the two up front because 
it leaves you one short in midfield and that can be exploited by any Premier League team, particularly the better ones. Yeah, Mike, the, the lacking of Kiko problem for you? Well, not necessarily a problem. I think defensively, I think Kiko has got, got huge limitations and I'd rather have Ngakia in there at right back. I think he's shown enough tenacity and focus and determination that, that he's my right back, I think, really. One name is standing out when, when Jason says that 4-4-2 and he's not going to be ready for Burnley, but Ismail Assar... And, you know, we've, we've umdenard about him, him a lot this, this season and, and in the past. The, 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 re, the reality is he is probably our, our star player still in terms of his pace, in terms of what he can do. We, don't, we haven't seen it often enough. Obviously, he's been injured and there's a massive question mark, really, about what sort of player he is when he comes back from this injury. Has it impacted his, his, his electric pace? Has it impacted his confidence? Has it done the opposite? Has it given him a renewed sort of lust for life? And, and will he want to be getting out there and really get those afterburners on and make up for lost time? We're not sure. So that that's one that we're waiting with bated breath on. But it's so important, isn't he, for us? The fact that we've got him to come back. We've been without him for such a long period of time. We haven't won a game without him. Him coming back could be a, a massive, massive boost because Watford without Ismail Assar is different. And that's for us as supporters us, us and, and the opposition. It's something else they don't have to worry about. So when he comes back, that, that it could be a huge Philip for us. And I think he tends to play better when he links up with Kiko because that, that link up down the right-hand side seems to be one of the few bright spots in terms of partnerships in this, in this team over the last sort of over the last season or so, if you like. Do we somehow get Kiko into the team to, to, to unlock the potential of Ismail Assar when he's fit? And of course, then he goes back to what I said earlier. I, I have trouble with him defensively. So that, that's a really interesting one. I felt that looking at those, those players, you know, Jason picked, the players that you've sort of mentioned as well, Colin, when everyone's fit or even when everyone's back from AFCON, there are options there for us to be able to make changes, to change it about. If Ngaki is the one who starts, Kiko coming in would give us a bit more attacking if we need that. If we are behind a bit and we need to push a bit more forward, then Tom Cleverley with his, his press and, 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 and everything that he can do and harassing of, uh, of defences, that then it, it's adaptable. I think that's what, you know, this whole exercise we've done might be absolutely pointless, but it's quite fun and we have to do it to get our minds straightforward as, as football fans. So just to pick up on that, John, I, d- I don't think it's really... F- fundamentally about who you play I think it's about how Roy gets them to play so you could say that Kiko is not as good defensively uh, as Ngakia but we might need Kiko because he links up so well with Saar so you say okay well risk and reward the risk is that Kiko gets out of position but, he, but the reward could be that he he makes the cross or he gets the one-two with Saar that gets him into the box to score but so that's the risk and then how you mitigate that risk is you make that central midfield area so much uh, they play deeper and and they are more they're closer together and so therefore the risk of suddenly the opposition break down their left hand side where Kiko and Saar have got left up the pitch you can mitigate that risk because you pull players back into positions where they can they can stop that before it starts. Uh, so whether that's Musa coming across, whether that's uh, Loser coming across or Kiembe, for me, apart from Saar, there aren't any players that I think 
say, right, well, they're definitely going to play because I don't think it's about the individuals. We've, we've seen so much individual football from our players this season. It hasn't worked that well. What we need to see is a kind of team ethic, a really strong sense of understanding each other's jobs, working together as a unit, not as individuals. And I think that that is what Roy will be focusing on. One of the problems that we've had as a club, because we've had to rebuild the team three on three, you know, we had a team in the Premier League, we had a different team in the Championship, we've got a totally different team in the Premier League. So we, we've been focused as fans on individuals, of course we have, but what we haven't had, when you compare it to like a Brentford, for instance, is we don't have that team, that sense of, uh, of team spirit, of togetherness, of a belief in each other. And I, I'm hoping that that will be the thing. Listening to Danny Murphy talking about how Roy works, that will be the thing. It's like, it's not about you as individuals. It's about you collectively. This is how we're going to play. You all understand that. Do your jobs and you'll start next week. Don't do your jobs and someone else will get in there. And I think that that's really a positive thing going forward. I think it's an incre incredibly difficult task, possibly the the biggest challenge of Roy's career in some ways to, to keep us in this division. I think the signs are good. I think the signs are good. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Do not scratch your ears. You're listening to From the Rookery End. We talked a lot about Roy uh, and about what it means for us as, and what it's going to mean for us as what for fans about him being our, our new manager. Uh, but there's one man, as we've talked about before, Ray Lewington coming back to the club. And, and if you listen to the podcast on Wednesday, you could hear it in DCW. He was excited that Ray was coming back. And, and you could see the slightly older Adam and the slightly older Mike didn't quite grab hold of it. You could hear there was an, an excitement in DCW. And I wanted to have a chat to him a little bit about that season, particularly Ray's first full season in charge, 2000. 2003 it was such a landmark season where everything that happened off the pitch in terms of the troubles but also on the pitch it was a very very Watfordy season so I want to speak to Dave and I spoke to him yesterday uh, about that season and what it means to him and particular Ray Lewington that season and and really that period the Ray Lewington two and a half well two and three quarter seasons they were the time that properly cemented my fandom. They were the time, I suppose I came of age, really, as a supporter. I started going to games on my own sometimes. I started going to games with friends. It, it didn't always have to be dad who took me. You know, it wasn't just four games a season or whatever. It was, it was basically whenever I wanted to go. And, and, and it was my bond with the team was forged in that time. Also, I suppose... There was something about that time, again, which chimed, I think, with, as you were just saying, about the sort of particularly Watfordy. We were back after a period of high expectation and relative glamour under Viali. And before that, 
a fairy tale under Graham Taylor, we were kind of back being the underdog again. We had our backs against the walls. You know, we, we were in big trouble financially. I can vividly remember people shaking buckets outside Vicarage Road, kind of save our club situation. And there was the pay cut and there was that whole not long for administration and you know, all, all that stuff. And it, and it really felt that we had sort of to come together, group together to try and save Watford. And all the while that was happening on the pitch, especially in that first half of the season, the team were, were doing exceptionally well and, and especially at home. And they were right up there at one point. I think they could have gone top of the table at one, at one stage if they'd beaten Wolves. It's just a, a time I look back fondly on because even though the football wasn't necessarily brilliant, as I've, I've watched the highlights from the 2002-2003 season and they're quite hilarious, really. The football is quite appalling at times, not just Watford, but of the whole standard and in terms of the opponents as well. Even though it was all a bit rough around the edges, it was my time. And Ray Lewington was at the helm of that. And he was a figure that we could get behind because he was very down to earth and he was in touch with the supporters. You could just as easily imagine him coaching a team on Hackney Marshes as you could coaching a team like Watford. And he had that real connection to the community, to the football. He was a football man without being, without using that, you know, I, I don't want to, to call him a proper football man, paints him as something that I don't want to paint him as. But I think he is actually a real good example of a football man. He lives and breathes football. I've just always been very fond of him for that reason. But what about those players, Dave, in, in that season? Because, you know, there's a mixture. There's a huge mixture. There's still, a, a you know, a big, strong gathering from that 99 promotion season. There's the, a few razzmatazzy ones hanging around the place. You know, Alan Nielsen uh, and Heide Helgerson from the Premier League and, and the, the following seasons with Viali. And, and then, yeah, but there's a, it's this lovely sort of core of Dyche and Cox and Ardley, these proper professionals, these English hard men uh, that were just just made up this, this wonderful team that was weirdly, well, incredibly Watfordy. Yeah, it was a real ragtag bunch, I think. We only made two permanent signings that summer, which was, I think, a sign of the times in terms of, you know, the previous summer, there was an influx, obviously, under Viali, and there was all players from Italy and Ramel Vega and Marcus Gale signing from Rangers and all that sort of stuff. So this summer, it was very much back to basics. It was Sean Dyche in, who I think had been, I don't think he'd be had to be, had he been at Millwall before? And then before that, he was famously at Chesterfield when they got to the FA Cup semi-final. And then there was Neil Ardley, again, who I, th I think they were both free transfers. They were very much your typical solid professionals, very much of the sort that Ray Lewington could trust and would want to get into his side straight away and depend on. And, and that's what they did. Uh, but it, it was funny watching watching some of the early games. You know what Sean Dyche's side is like now and it's all long ball and it's direct... Uh, without being unkind and Daesh kept getting done he kept getting done by long balls over the top again and again and again he just couldn't didn't couldn't seem to head a, head a thing from the from the the highlights that I saw which may have been unfair to him I'm not sure but it was it was an interesting sort because as you say there was there were some some leftovers there were players like Stephen Glass Alan Nielsen Marcus Gale, who were some of the bigger names who were around the season before who stayed. And I think, if I'm right, Gale won player of the season that year after Lewington moved him from striker come left winger to being a sort of left-sided centre-back in a back three initially and then playing in a back two as, as centre-back in a remarkable transformation. If you were to ask me, what's a Rolls-Royce defender? I'd say Marcus Gale in 2002-03 for Watford. But then there was also weird like little loan spells, like Jermaine Pennant had like a mad loan spell with us in the middle of the season and was superb. 
like absolutely brilliant but we couldn't keep him for more than i think the 3 months loan that we that we had him he was instrumental in a couple of the cup, early cup wins in, in that cup run we obviously had chopra which maybe we can talk about in a bit we talk about the fa cup semi final but we also had you know McNamee played quite a few games that season when he'd burst onto the scene the season before and then you've got the likes of like Wayne Brown played 15 games Gavin Mann played sort of 16 17 games and there was a lot of chopping and changing like Gifton and Williams I was surprised to see like played about nearly 20 games and Smith and Helgerson and Danny Weber was there at the start of the season and as you say Dominic Foley chipped in with a few goals at the start of the season Doyley played a few games Helgerson had a good season and scored a lot of goals but he was injured at the start Neil Cox scored a lot of goals from corners he was on penalties for a bit you've got Vanazza you've got Hyde Alec Chamberlain was kind of one of the only constants pretty much in, in goal for most of the season you know there was the likes of Jamie Hand who got games as well like it was it, yeah you're right a really strange sort of collection of players and even Richard Johnson came back from his injury I think he played about 10 games and it was kind of a lot of a lot of players who just were just passing each other at various stages of their career but it was a good bunch it was a good group a group that I think probably were greater than the sum of their parts I suppose that the biggest thing for me with that whole season is that ragtag team it was a, a, a great first half bad second half we finished we were 14 points off the playoff 14 points uh, off relegation in 13th place and it just it that was such a great accomplishment but the greatest accomplishment and it felt huge huge at that point i'm not being blase because we've done it twice since but the fa cup semi-final and the fa cup run was a thing of wonder came out of the blue what we're doing the fa cup run the league form was rubbish we were absolutely terrible. Didn't win a game at all during that. But that, that FA Cup semi-final particularly, Dave, what's, what's your love of that? Oh, that whole FA Cup run, as you say, was magical. I can remember the whole thing. And I, although, I was, again, I was watching the, the highlights on YouTube, actually, I'd, I'd forgotten who we played in the third round. We beat Macclesfield away in the third round, which is a nice, you know, when they were a league team, which is a nice throwback. I remember the West Brom game which was the fourth round. And at the start of the West Brom, West Brom highlights, it, the, the, the commentator, I think it's Mike Vince, says, uh, and now it's Watford's turn to try and be the giant killers after beating Macclesfield in the... And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, our times have changed. We battered them, absolutely battered them, and eventually won 1-0 with a late goal from Helgerson. Again, Jermaine Pennant was instrumental in that goal and in that performance. And then I remember going up to Sunderland. I think that might have been, you know what, it might even have been my first ever away day. Someone asked me that recently and think and I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on it, but I think it might have been that game actually. I went up on the coach to Sunderland, which was a ma it, it, I mean, I think it was about five hours, six hours, but it felt like it felt like ten hours. It really did. But it was worth it. I and mean, obviously the retaken penalty and and Sunderland laying siege to our goal and Chamberlain just stopping everything. It was an amazing victory. And, and amazing to see the retaken penalty. Like in the pre-VAR era, like it seems like such a rarity. They they pulled Thomas Sorensen back for encroachment. Mike Dean of all people was the referee that day. And then I remember the quarterfinal, which in quarterfinals are special because they're at your if they're at your ground, and obviously like the Crystal Palace one a few years ago, and. I was right right behind the goal in the rookery end. Those days, I seem to have this habit of getting tickets quite near the pitch, whereas nowadays I much prefer to be much higher up. But I was right behind the goal, so I was right in the thick of it when Smith and Glass scored at that end in the second half. I just remember it being just pandemonium. I remember the ticket people would would uh, tear up the like bits of yellow yellow pages. 
right? And throw them, throw them up in the air. And I remember those being everywhere. And then obviously the excitement of getting to a semi-final. Again, for me, this would have been the first time I would experience that. I was, I was only two years old when we got to the one in, in 87. I went up with my dad and it was at Villa Park again, which was like an exotic sort of thing, you know, going up on the track, <laughs> going up on the car. Yeah. I think we got a lift actually up to up to Birmingham because we, we met we met someone that my dad knew who was a West Brom fan. So we were in that part of the world. And I remember we watched the the same day was Sheffield United, Arsenal at Old Trafford and David Seaman made that, made that amazing save. I remember watching that in the pub and then we went to the game. And I, again, the balloons, the ticker tape, just the atmosphere, the noise, the colour, all the, you know, that, that shirt, again, was just plain bright yellow and the whole crowd was wearing it. The Southampton fans were good on the day, I seem to remember as well. And it was just, you know, we had a chance early on, Helgeson nearly scored and the ball spins the wrong way around the post. And ultimately we, we lost the game and we scored, got one back late on, but it was too little too late. But I remember being crushed I was crushed. I was so disappointed. I was I was right down the other end. I, I was in the top tier towards the other end of the pitch from the Holt end, which is where the Watford fans were. And I think that affected the atmosphere a little bit around me. And I was really annoyed at the fans around me who weren't singing till the end in, you know, in that sort of belligerent way that you can be as a teenager, just like being annoyed at people. Come on. And I was really annoyed. I was so disappointed, but it was a magical thing. And to look back at it now as well, to think that if Christ, if that team had got through, I mean, it's probably a good job we didn't get through to the final because I think we probably would have lost more than 6-0 because we would have been going up against Arsenal, like in their pomp with Omri and you know they were only a year year or two out from the Invincibles at that time weren't they they were defending Premier League champions that season God knows what would have happened and it would have been in the Millennium Stadium wouldn't it but it was an amazing cup run obviously and financially it really helped the club as well as you say it did the league form did go off a cliff because of it but the other game that we have to mention is a few weeks before the semi-final was that mad game at Burnley at Turf Moor. Great season for playing Burnley. <laughs> we were 5-4 up at half-time. 5-4 at half-time is absolutely absurd. Obviously, went on to win it 7-4. Chopra gets the hat-trick. Gets four. We got four. Yeah, four goals. And then Smith is out of the team for the semi-final, which actually knock-on effect meant that Tommy Smith leaves on a free transfer in the summer. Uh, to go to Sunderland, of all places, the team that he vanquished in the fifth round of the FA Cup. But yeah, it was a crazy season. There was a lot of highs. There were a few lows. It was the best season of Lewington's time, even though Lewington got, even though we got to the League Cup semi-final of the year after that, which just was great with those games against Portsmouth and Southampton. But it's not quite the same as it's an FA Cup run. And, you know, the two-legged semi-final against Liverpool always meant that we were probably going to lose that one. And then the year after... And we only just stayed up in the second season. And then the year after, we were really, really staring down the barrel, weren't we? And that's when they decided to pull the trigger and, and fire Ray. But, yeah, I mean, I've got nothing but fond memories of that time for the reasons I've already said. And as well, I think as well as the highlights, if you can, if you can dig it out on YouTube, they did a little thing at the end of the second season's DVD which, you know, end of season DVDs as well. They were such, you know, such a great thing back in those days. I was thinking about this, because the, the two parts you sent me, were they two, what, did one part come out before Christmas, in time for Christmas? Yeah. Because it's two massive yeah. parts. So I they think did. part one, because it finishes in November. Yeah. I reckon they got it out in time for Christmas, because the second one, I love the beginning of the second one, where there's Graham Simpson say, saying, basically, please buy a he's season begging. ticket. He's absolutely, yeah. Absolutely begging. He's but begging again, fans it's, it's part to, of the time. Begging fans to... to yeah, to to come for the whole season, sign up for a season ticket, not just the odd game. I mean, I'm on the waiting list now. 
I can't get I can't get a season ticket for love nor money. So again, how times change. And yeah, that's right. Actually, they must have rushed that out before before Christmas to make it make a bit of cash. You know, in the Christmas yeah. in the Christmas uh, you know present market. Melee and, and Watford. Yeah, and they've won some games. We can sell some DVDs yeah. and VHS. <laughs> exactly. But then the, the the year after, I think, was a full season one, and they did a little bit at the end. Of it. it was like a DVD extra or something that they tagged on, and it was it was a, a day with Ray. And they basically filmed him like getting, leaving his yeah. house at like eight in the morning or whatever and getting in the car, going to the ground. And it was a game of the last game of the season was against Reading. And it was like a day in the life of Ray Lewington. But you really got a sense then of, again, of just how he, a little kid comes up to him in the car park down, the, down at the end of Occupation Road and he signs the autograph and he's sort of talking about players he wants to bring in in the summer, but he needs to get bodies out to get bodies in and trying to beg the chairman for an extra, you know, 50 grand. 100 grand here and there to get this player that player you've got him on the touchline with Terry Burton as well who was his assistant at the time talking about the substitutions I think a player goes off injured early on he brings on Ashley Young and Ashley Young goes on to I think score a good goal against Reading and it's just it's, again it's just a real insight into the into Ray Lewington the man the football man the man away from the pitch and he Seems like a really decent bloke. It didn't quite work out for him as Watford manager, I suppose. And if you look at the entirety of well, the end of his, the end of his reign, but he, he can certainly hold his head high with the job that he did in a really difficult time, picking up the pieces after the absolute mess that was the Viali season. And it's great that what are we twenty twenty years later? Uh, he's back. I think Ray can really hold his head high with with real distinction at. Yeah, the cup, the cup semi-finals were huge, great moments, and just for really steadying the ship, holding us together at a time when it could have gone south pretty quickly. If you look at some of the other clubs that were affected by the ITV Digital crash and the money that was lost by all those clubs, I'm looking at teams like Bradford, for example, who had come down, I think, the season before and, you know, basically been struggling, with the exception of one cup run themselves, have been struggling for the last 20 years. You know, other, other, in that, that, you look through that season, there are teams like Walsall in the Championship, Grimsby in the Championship, uh, Stockport, you know, who were in the league not too long before that. And there's, there's lots of teams that have just vanished and they've just dropped because they had a few bad years and they couldn't recover. Wofford could have been one of those teams. And we didn't do that. We kept ourselves in the league. We kept competitive. We kept our heads above water. We brought in money through cup runs. We sold the old player here and there. And then Boothroyd comes in, takes us up to the Premier League. And kind of that gives us the next foundation to, you know, see ourselves through the next period of time before the Pozzos come in. So Ray did a really, really important job for us. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be forgotten. <laughs> From the rookery end. So Ray back at Watford, reminiscing lovely there. It was brilliant to think back to those that time. A very Watfordy time, it feels for me. But Mike, where's Ray sit for you in your hierarchy of Watford head coaches slash managers or whatever we want to call them these days? But in that, that list of managers, we all know GT's number one. Where's Ray sit for you? I think he's up there because he he's very similar to GT, I think, in terms of his ethos and his outlook in as much as that he wanted to do everything right and do things right by people. And I think that that meant the players at the club, staff at the club and supporters of the club. He's just one of these guys who recognises right and wrong. He knows that there's a correct way to do things. 
and you know it shouldn't be hard to, to be like that of course but uh, you know we know these days it uh, it's increasingly hard for certain individuals to uh, to stay on the straight and narrow i think he's just a gem of a bloke and he's someone that we were proud to have as as head coach of watford perhaps even more importantly on a sort of logistical level Watford were really up against it at that at that stage with with when Ray, Ray Lewington was in charge. There was a whole heap of financial issues that we had to had to navigate, and to have someone like like Ray Lewington as the as the figurehead, certainly in terms of the playing staff, gave everyone a sense of belief, I guess, and a sense of calm. Stripped it right back. It was kind of the very the very sort of element the the very base elements of being a Watford supporter up against it on the pitch up against it off it but but retaining dignity and a sense of humor and being able to to enjoy it we had ups and downs in that season but the reality was we were always the underdog really in in most games we we played for whatever reason and that's kind of where Watford have lived their their life, isn't it? And that's not to say that's where we always want to be as the underdogs. Obviously, we want to establish ourselves if we can, as we, if we can. But for most of our Watford supporting career, we've never been a favourite. We've never been a fancied side. Um, but that's not stopped any of us going to football or enjoying it or absolutely adoring Watford Football Club. And I think, yeah, Ray Lewington and that time was the yeah was the archetypal example of that no real chance of winning anything but a team we could line up behind uh, and and a, and a head and a manager we could be be proud of and a club we could be proud of Colin I like to think the Mickey out of Jason for his age I don't think the Mickey out of you for your age um, but you've been Watford a lot longer than us and seen you know pre GT we haven't where is it again as as that a period of time an era let's call it where Ray was in charge how how do you connect with that one compared to you know GT and even pre-GT. He had three seasons. We had a good look at him. Uh, and, and under uh, the Potsos, as everybody knows, uh, apart from Javi, who I think is up there for me, uh, Javi Grazia in, in recent times, I think Ray is very, very high up that league table. Like, obviously, Ken Furphy, and I was very young, but Ken Furphy was the, the sort of manager that was, at the time, he had very new ideas. They all went on a pre-season camping trip to the Lake District. You try doing that with Premier League players. <laughs> Emmanuel Dennis in the tent saying, where's the hotel? Is it, is there a, is a hot tub? What's the hot tub? Is there, what's this? <laughs> they have, they have to wash in a river and go for a run up and down hills. I mean, it was just, but he did that because uh, he was an early adopter of that kind of understanding of team spirit. And he got the club uh, for the first time in its history into the second division, sadly only for the one season and got the club to a cup semi-final. So comparing him to a, uh, I think is interesting in terms of his ability to actually coach the team and uh, to hold the whole club together just through the sheer force of will. And probably back to what we were saying earlier was just about it being simple. Here are my players. There's a pitch. This is how I want us to play. Go and do that. You, you know, obviously you're often playing against better players, but they may not be as well organised as you or they may not have the same kind of desire as you or they may not be as ambitious as you. So, you know, use those to your advantage. I think he did incredibly well. I, I was very disappointed when he was sacked because I couldn't really see what was the point of sacking him. You probably weren't going to find anyone better. Um, obviously, things have changed since since he left in 2005, but I, I think he's definitely, definitely in the top Top three, I would say. I think you've got to put him in the top three just simply in terms 
of the achievements that he managed that I've just outlined. Thank you very much, Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. Not at all. Let's go. Get those starting blocks, lads. <laughs> Let's just hope Ben Johnson gets full started, eh? We'll be back again with the podcast in the midweek with Adam, where we'll sort of try and find out a little bit more about that article, which you can, of course, read on The Athletic, about the people who have worked with Roy before. What is it going to be like in Vicarage Road over the next 18 games? Uh, we've been from the Vicarage End. Please tell your friends uh, and do subscribe in all the places that you get a podcast from. But, of course... If you do like your podcast, then make sure you check out the latest episode of Hornet Heaven. Uh, Ollie, as well as Colin over here, uh, has been uh, written, performed a few new episodes. Uh, one out this week, all about, well, it was a relegation season. Mike, can you guess when this relegation season is that they would talk about? <laughs> Not this season, I hope. No, it was the 1900-1901 season um, and there's some brilliant bits I was there John I was actually there um, <laughs> you, you took Jason didn't you yeah Jason was a boy at the time but we stood in the junior hornets and uh, well we were called the blues back then I don't know what we were called actually in 1900 uh, here's a quick clip come on Watford one last effort you can do it <whistles> alright then no you can't it's December the 1st, 1900, and Stan Roberts, a Watford supporter for nearly 20 years, leaves the West Arts Club and ground disappointed. He lifts his collar against the cold and sets off to visit the love of his life, Sally, to tell her how Watford got on today. Sally isn't far away. She's on Vicarage Road, which is only 500 yards as the crow flies, across one of the many fields here on the edge of town. Stands in a crowd of 2,000 people leaving the ground, shuffling slowly through the same gate, spilling out onto Cassio Road. They're mainly men, all of whom are wearing suits and hats. Stan nips through a line of horse-drawn vehicles and quickens his pace. He just wants to be with Sally again. He wishes he had better news for her. Watford have just lost their sixth game in a row, 2-1 against Millwall in the Southern League Division 1. The team's finding it hard in the top division after last season's promotion. They've played 11 games and only won one. It was a good one, mind. A 2-1 win over the champions, Tottenham Hotspur. He loved that one. The only disappointment was that Sally wasn't there, so they couldn't enjoy it together. She didn't miss much today, though. Watford looked like they'd end up relegated. We'll be back with uh, another From the Recruit midweek. Uh, so please make sure you stick around because it's going to be a fun season. Isn't it, Mike? On your marks. Get set. Come on, yours! The Athletic.